Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round, the most perfect time-killing podcast ever devised. closed off because there were paparazzi, there were uh, minders, there were crowds gathering, there were barriers, so obviously somebody's been tipped off that there's a who's round occurring, so we've had to nip around the corner to a Japanese restaurant. So I'm going to ask my, uh, uh, my victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Keith Hodiak and uh, I suppose my claim to fame is that I was in The Five Doctors and I played the Rastan warrior robot and it turned out to be quite a popular part or character. Well, he's fabulous, yeah, all a silver one piece, just throwing spears at Simon. Well, well, you caught me just, I think I'd stopped dancing for about two or three years prior to that. So I was just beginning to fill out physically, so <laughs> they caught me at about, just about the right time, just before they tummy started to <laughs> so I was holding my tummy in like mad <laughs> <laughs> that's why I've never been cast in such a role um, so how did, how did you get the part well I think one of the directors was interested in dance I think and he obviously knew of me and I think that's where it started I think think he obviously liked dancers or well, John Nathan Turner, the producer, his partner was Gary Downey, who had yeah. been a dancer. Oh, okay, that's yeah. what it is, you see. Uh, and so he, I think the story was that they were looking for an action part, and they thought, well, why don't we use a dancer? And, you know, the silver suit, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so was, did you have to audition, or...? No, I mean, we just had a chat. We met and had a chat, and then I don't know how many, I had a costume fitting, and then went up to Scotland, and it was totally improvised. They just told me, gave me an idea, and I just sort of experimented with it, you know. I suspect you weren't very warm. <laughs> I think it took me about three days to recover. Really? Yeah, I mean... I think it had some kind of effect on my kidneys and tummy because of you know, how cold it was. And what was interesting too was the fact that it was so cold and it was so dark that one was totally involved in one's own sort of suffering and misery as such. And I was sitting in the car with John Pertwee, not knowing who he was. Oh no! <laughs> and then he went into the Wurzel Gummidge speech. Yeah. And I knew straight away then who he was. So and had I, you had you come had you not watched Doctor Who as a, as a kid? I watched yes, I had. But I hadn't I mean I wasn't like a big fan mm. as such, but I did watch as a as a child. I did watch the programme. But I think what uh, surprised me was when he suddenly came out with this Wurzel Gummidge mm -hmm. patter and I thought that was really funny and then I realised who he was you know? <laughs> and so when you were when you were in that mask I mean could you see an awful lot no 
No, not really. Uh, very, I mean, I could see, obviously, but not very well. I mean, the whole thing was totally improvised, uh, spontaneous. They would say, well, can you do a jump and lean over to the side or, or turn around? And, you know, so I just improvised and, mm -hmm. and that was it, you know. So it was totally sort of spontaneous. Well, it's a fantastic scene, that scene where you kill all the Simon in. It's yeah. a, you're a pretty mean machine. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was, I felt, look, looking at it, I thought, my God, I wished I did some more of that, you know. Mm -hmm. It felt good, and I enjoyed it. It's certainly one of the most memorable bits of the, of the story, I think. Well, I'm glad, you know, because I think working in the theatre as a dancer and so on, I didn't get the same kind of, um, sort of, uh, what's the word? I, this character turned out to be quite, quite a popular one, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, a dancer may be dancing at the opera house, and they're popular with the ballet fans. Yet they do something on television, and then they're actually, you know, remembered for that. You know. Yeah. Well, and but of all, a Doctor Who's to do to do the twentieth anniversary. That's story, right. <clears throat> and to film in a quarry. That's about as Doctor Who as you get. Yes, but they didn't let on and all that, you know, it was just sort of like, come, good, nice that you're here, this is what you have to do, and thank you very much, <laughs> and that was that. But do you get people, I mean, apart from me, do you get people, um, people know that you've done it? And oh, I get, I get fan mail a fair bit, uh, and then when I do a signing, I'm always surprised at the amount of people that actually show up and so on. I do yeah. a lot of signing. So, so um, I mean, at that time, you, you did you did other bits of television because you were in um, you were in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, I, bit of I think what had happened was like I was when I left the, the Rombe Dance Company, I went into doing musicals. I did about seven West End musicals. And in so doing the musicals, I would then be offered bits of acting part, you know, but I never really saw myself as an actor as such, you know, I was really a dancer, but I was taught at stage school and dance school that if you're offered anything, take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, seeing as we're at Leicester Square and there's a film premiere going on, um, American Werewolf in London, uh, yes. were you a policeman? That was on I mean, it was, how can I say, I think that didn't work out for me so well uh, in so much as that I felt I wasn't able to do what the director wanted and I think my scene was on the cutting floor, really. Oh, so we don't, we don't see the, ma the majority of what you did. It was yeah. probably just for time. It's not always the actor's fault, you know. But with the Stanley Kubrick, uh, with a full metal jacket, mm -hmm. That, that was interesting, that the, the, the guy who played the lead, which was Matthew Modi, mm. he came to the Pineapple with a friend of his, and he'd heard about this dance class from his friend. And he said to me, um, he introduced himself. I, of course, didn't know who he was. And he said, um, I would like to take your dance class. And I says, well, how much have you done? And he says, well, not very much, but I really want to do it. So I thought, well, okay, because I think the class was an intermediate class. So he started coming and coming, you know, regularly and so on. 
And uh, what was quite interesting was that he just said he was an actor and that was it, nothing else. And then two, three months later, I get a telephone call. Can you do a screen test? I'm doing a film with Stanley Kubrick. I told him about you and he'd like to have a look at you. And at that time, I'd had an accident where I had a big red eye and there was no go. Then about two months later on into the film, he says, let's have a look at that friend of yours again. And that was it. They phoned me later and says, you're in. Wow. So that was really nice, you know. And how was Kubrick, famously an enigmatic man? I think everyone around him had enormous respect for him. I found him very much relaxed. Uh, he told me, he saw that I had an interest in music. He said he wanted to become a professional drummer, and, uh, but then he realized that I think he was wasting his time with that and decided that he should really be making films. You know, and I thought that was quite interesting because obviously he saw the interest that I had in music mm. then. And um, thank you. And uh, the other thing was was that he had such a kind of informal way of working, in so much as that he would spend a long time setting up the scene, lighting the scene, and he was. I think at one point. He was stroking this, he had this dog, you know, and he was stroking the dog and looking at the set, obviously contemplating what he should do. And then he would wait for about five minutes and then decide what he was going to do. But everyone had a tremendous respect for him. And he was very calm, very collected, and very focused. Very nice man. Yeah. Okay, well, because we, 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 we're very familiar with your screen work, but to, to take us right back to the beginning, but to how you got there, so what, we've just had a, a, a conversation off mic about it's either in you to perform or it isn't, so is it always in you and, and, and more? I think so, yes. Yeah. I think it was from a very early age. I think the first person that sort of sparked it off for me was when I was a child and I heard Elvis Presley. I thought that was, that sounded good, you know, and... And I think when I auditioned for Art's Head, I think what they saw was someone who was musical, with a strong body, and from what they understood that I really wanted to dance. So they nicely and kindly gave me a scholarship, and that's where it started. You know. And is there any, was there a, any particular field of dancing that you excelled in? Well, I, I think they thought, because they'd had, at that time, they had a guy in the school who was quite brilliant. His name is John Fletcher. And he was on the cover of a dance magazine called Dance and Dancers. I think he was about the age 18 or 19 at the time. And they said he was the best, youngest up-and-coming dancer in England. I was a beginner in the same classroom with him. So I developed a passion for the classical ballet. But I think they knew that it was the modern side that I was going to excel in because of the rhythmic kind of background that I came from and feel, I suppose. Yeah, but that was it. I mean, I worked in Germany for a year in a kind of an opera ballet company and then came back and joined the Ronde there. And then 
from then onwards. I went into the West End musicals and so on. Yeah. And what, what, what were the highlights of uh, when you were performing at the West End? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was pretty much sort of hard grafting, grueling, you know, mm -hmm. if you're doing eight shows a week. Physical, mm -hmm. you know, and I think because my dance was strong, I su suppose it was used mm. yeah, to, well, to the utmost. Well, and you, you met me having come from the gym, so you have to keep <laughs> yourself in peak physical condition, I take it. Well, I mean, I do a, a certain amount of physical work, at least between two and three hours a day sometimes, you know, quite often, and I can't lay off. Yeah. Because even in teaching dance, even though I don't do everything, you have to be able to do a certain amount. And so I think having been a dancer, to let it go completely would be disastrous. Mm. Really. Well, and, and yes, because you, you mentioned the pineapple, you, the famous pineapple studios That's is where right. you've, you've, you've taught dance for how many years? For at least 20 years, yeah. you know. Uh, but now I'm. I feel that I have, because of the musicality again, I feel that there's something pulling me in the direction of vocals, mm -hmm. of uh, exploring that and bringing that out into the public. It's not going to be easy, of course, but I believe that I have something to offer, you know. And that must be a huge sea change, though, having expressed yourself using just your body to then uh, to the exclusion. Well, I did for a while. Was in a vocal group, four years, travelling and singing, doing holiday camps and cruise ships. So singing is not absolutely new to me, you know. But it's just that I think I had it in such high esteem that I thought I could never possibly do that. But as you get, as you mature in years. You begin to see things differently and sort of understand yourself a lot better. You know, I mean, I think getting to know yourself and understanding yourself sometimes it can take time. Mm. Yeah. You know, me, understanding me, knowing your strong points and your weak points. You know, yeah. and I think, I think it was the music that led me into dance, and I think also it's the music. I've, uh, the first question, my dance teacher asked me, the absolute first question, she said, have you had voice training? And I said, no. So it tells you that there's something inside. Yeah, <laughs> some connection, some symbiosis. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. And she was very, I was very grateful for what she did, did with me, because she took me up as an absolute beginner. And you know, from sort of basic, knowing nothing and, you know, to an advanced level within four years, you know. Well, and, and having ta taught it... Eve Pettinger, I have to mention uh, her name. Name check, yes. <laughs> and, and having taught it yourself, can anyone dance? Uh, that's how I should think as a teacher. <laughs> Whether any, anyone can... I think performing is one thing. I mean, I don't think everybody is sort of can be a performer as such, because some people, I think, can sing very well and dance very well, but then if you put them in front of people, uh -uh, they don't want to do it. So I think there's that side of it, but I think everyone can get something out of dance and everyone can dance. At least that's how I think, because I think she took me up as being like a 
piece of clay, and I felt that she moulded me quite nicely. So was there no performance in your background at all? Before that, no. Well, I mean, no. When I was at school, I got involved in, um, like, secondary school. I got involved in things like um, the school plays and, and so on, and I think that's what led to this audition for Arts Ed, you know, from doing, like, little bits of Caribbean-type sort of sketches that we performed in, at one time it was the Commonwealth Institute. We did a, this in the front, Clissell Park School, we put, this was a troupe of dancers and I would always be given the lead, that, that sort of thing, and that's what led to me getting this uh, scholarship at Arts Head. And two, as we discussed off mic, but I think it's worth repeating, perhaps for the microphone, you met Rudolf Nureyev. Oh yes, that was just by chance. I was doing a musical in town by the name of Bubbling Brown Sugar. It was an American musical. And there was a guy from, who was born in um, South America, Dutch Guyana. And he, we were walking along the street and we saw that Rudy was on at the Coliseum. And he says, would you like to come back and see him? And I said, well, uh, sure. Great. I says, do you know him? He says, yeah. He was very cocky and confident. So he went to the stage door. The, his Luigi, the guy who looked after him, came to check us out, invite us back to the dressing room, went in. He had his back to us when we walked in, and he uh, turned around and was, you know, very pleasant, very nice, and greeting. And he said, um, did you see the show? And we didn't, and I think he was disappointed because he wanted to know how it was. And um, he asked me what I did, and I told him. And then finally, I think he, finally he did a dance step, step for me just before he left the dressing room. Almost fell over, because he was exhausted, and went to the stage door. There was an enormous queue waiting for autographs. And that was it. I think he was going to sign every single one, and we just left. That was my encounter with the famous Rudolf Nureyev. Oh, not bad, not bad. <laughs> and uh, and you've, you've seen the world doing, doing work? I mean, it's not a bad well, way to see the world. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I travelled, you know, we went to Japan, uh, Honolulu, where else? With the Rombear, we did practically all of Europe. And when, when you're a company, when I've been as a company of actors, um, and companies of actors tend to go out at night and, you know, you travel around and you get drunk, you don't particularly look after yourself because you just have to get up at half past six, go for the half hour call and, and act in a play. But when you're dancing, you clearly have to be much more disciplined, do you? Well, I think class work is always the most important. I mean, I think if a, if a dancer, professional dancer, misses, let's say it's doing less than three or four classes a week. For me, it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> I knew that I, when I'd stopped dancing, I stopped dancing about the age 30, and I remember there was an American guy who was the assistant choreographer on the musical Bubbling Brown Sugar. He says, Hodiak, he says, you stop dancing when you're 30. You only learn how to dance when you're 30. <laughs> <laughs> But it's the training, mm. you know, and it's full on. Yeah. You know, it's not, 
it's not like something you can just sort of scrape through. You have to really do it. But also, as you've alluded to, it's, it's actually a short career. It is a short career. And, and, but when you're in the mix of, obviously, you worked a lot mm -hmm. of getting a lot of work. Yeah. So you're in a sort of bubble of, oh, this is what it is. This is what. Did you have a long-term view? Did you know what you were going to do when you stopped? Or is that suddenly a big reason? No, I just, I just felt that to keep that sustain, <coughs> that standard that I've, I've worked up to, to sustain it was really quite hard. And I felt that that's when I decided to stop because I knew I couldn't keep up with doing class every day, mm -hmm. six, seven days a week. And that's it. So I said, if you can't do that, forget it. <laughs> so then you, you taught, but did you enjoy the teaching? And, and, and do you have any teaching. success stories? That well, I mean, a number of people came through. I remember there was, there was a time when I began teaching, I had a number of boys came in from like Brixton and so on, you know, black boys, and they came in and about six or seven of them got into the Rombier School with grants, you know. I just had to write a letter to say that they'd been studying with me for two or three years. One did work at the Opera House in, uh, with the uh, Opera Ballet, he died, unfortunately, unfortunately, about two years ago. Then there was one guy called Colin who did quite well. He was in the West End doing West End musicals, very gifted. He now has an agency. I don't know if he still has at Dance Works. Uh, there was another one who went abroad. He asked me if he should, and I said, well, go abroad. He says, you can always come back. And he did very well in Finland, and uh, he's done quite well for himself. He pops back occasionally. I haven't seen him in a while, but he's done quite well. So few people here and there have done quite well. And what do you, and what do you think now that dance, because obviously we've got Strictly Come Dancing on as we record this, dance is, is suddenly cool? Well, I mean, I see that more as a kind of like a ballroom type thing, you know. I mean, it's not like where you're actually having to do three pirouettes or six pirouettes and split jumps and things like that. So it's, but it's good. I mean, I think dance should get more, um, much more, you know, viewing than it, you know, than it does. You know, if someone wants to see dance, they have to go to the theatre. And I, it's a pity there's not more of it on television. You know? Yeah. And what about what about the five doctors then? As we round up, do you do you, have you have you seen it recently? Do you do you, do, do your friends know? That's that's me killing the Cybermen. Uh, I think I tend to personally. I mean, I I think I play things like that down a little bit. <laughs> you know? If someone knows about it and takes an interest in it, obviously I'm interested to talk about it. But other than that, I don't sort of uh, broadcast it very much. Well, we all know who you are. Doctor Who icon. Well, there's only the two final questions that I have. The first one is uh, to nominate uh, a charity for the viewers to listen to. I said any charity for children, I think, okay. would be quite worthwhile. And um, Doctor Who, you were in Doctor Who on the 20th anniversary, mm -hmm. which is, is now... 30 years ago, yeah. as we record this just before Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, which is why I'm doing these podcasts. Okay. So what is your message to Doctor Who's fans on this 50th anniversary, 30 years after the one that you helped to create? Well, all I can do is really thanks. Thanks to the, to the directors for using me. And I'm 
happy that it's turned out to be quite popular. In, and I thank you, thank all the people that are involved. Thank you very much. Well, Keith Odiat, the most perfect killing machine the universe has ever devised. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank okay. you. That was okay for you. Good, good. That's fine. Thanks to Keith, who has nominated any children's charity, so I'll point you in the direction of Children in Need, which is Children in Need, all one word, dash donations, Children in Need, dash donations, dot co, dot uk. We've got a trailer coming up for the next one, and after that, instead of our usual big finish trailer, there is uh, an audio taster of something that uh, I have done that is hopefully dramatic and funny, and has somebody who was once in Doctor Who in it. Um, so listen to that if you would and in the meantime uh, here's what's coming up or rather who's coming up next on who's round uh, and until that occasion uh, enjoy your lives and try to be good in them it just ballooned out of all all realistic well it just wasn't achievable as, as what it was and um, and I think I have to say I'm incredibly proud of having done it. I'm incredibly proud of having been involved with it. Um, I'm also deeply embarrassed by, by, by the end result. I mean, it is just, it is just a mess. My name is Tom Newman. Now, I've been trying to convince myself that a week ago I didn't discover that my dad wasn't actually a recently deceased door-to-door -door salesman, but was, in fact, an alien of a superior species from a distant galaxy. Yeah, I wish I'd succeeded because it sounds bonkers, but I can't. This is Agent 221163, final report. Please, please do not recall me. I do not wish to return to the homeworld. I like it here. Jan, my dad was an alien. And as a result of this knowledge, I've overcome all the resultant childhood baggage and the trauma of his death. Excellent. Let's kiss, and then we'll go and watch the football together and get married in time for tea. I knew you'd understand. Well, that's how I'd intended it to go. 25 minutes. Termination in 25 minutes. Watch the skies. The Dad Who Fell to Earth, written by Toby Haydock and starring Ronald Pickup, is the BBC Radio 4 afternoon play on Thursday, July the 9th and will be available on iPlayer thereafter.